Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by G.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Young, Gifted, and Black, Phyllis Wheatley. All the world loves a prodigy, the precocious talent immediately fulfilled, the youth who outshines elders in a blaze of early glory. The world envies the prodigy a bit too, though. It can be hard to take when someone achieves more in their early years than you are likely to do in your whole life. The sentiment was well captured by the musical satirist Tom Lehrer, who remarked, It is a sobering thought that by the time Mozart was my age, he had been dead for two years. How must athletes feel when they contemplate, say, Simone Biles, the American gymnast who was already winning world titles at the tender age of 13 and is now, at the not much less tender age of 22, just about ready to retire as the greatest gymnast of all time? Speaking of Simone, the famous song by singer Nina Simone, To Be Young, Gifted, and Black, could fittingly have been written in Simone Biles' honor, except, of course, that it was recorded in 1969, when Biles was, as Tom Lehrer might have put it, negative 28 years old. Instead, the song was dedicated to the playwright and philosophical thinker Lorraine Hansberry, who died at 34, one year younger than Mozart at his death, as it happens. But perhaps the first woman in America who could have inspired the title, To Be Young, Gifted, and Black, was Phyllis Wheatley. Her name is like a concise history of her early life, Upon arriving in Boston in 1761, she was purchased by the Wheatley family after being brought to America on a slaving ship called the Phyllis, a voyage during which about one quarter of the human cargo perished. We don't know much about her life before she was abducted as a young child of about seven. It's not even clear where she was from exactly, although she herself speaks in one poem of the Gambia, apparently believing the area around that river to be her country of origin. A memoir, written in 1834 by a descendant of the Wheatleys, claims that Phyllis could remember her own mother pouring out water in a ritual, and prostrating to the sun. This may sound to some like the sort of traditional African religious practice that the Americans would have described as pagan, but others have wondered whether Phyllis's mother might have been a Muslim, since Muslims, of course, face east when they pray in the direction of the rising sun. The Wheatleys had suffered the death of a daughter, and seemed to have looked upon young Phyllis as a kind of replacement. Though still a slave, she was treated as something like a member of the family, and given the sort of education that very few slaves would have received, quickly learning English and then diving into the study of Latin. It's hard to say how good her Latin was, but in English, she gained not merely proficiency, but virtuosic mastery. At about the same age as Simone Biles started winning world titles, Wheatley was publishing the first of the poems that would make her famous, and also make her only the fifth woman, and certainly the first black woman, to have her writing published in America. This was in 1767, but Wheatley really came to prominence in 1770, with a poem in honor of the recently deceased evangelist George Whitefield. Another woman poet took inspiration from her poem about Whitefield, writing, Shall his due praises be so loudly sung by a young Afric damsel's virgin tongue? and I be silent? The Wheatleys supported a kind of publicity machine for the precocious poet, trying to raise subscriptions for publishing a collection of her works in Boston already in 1772. 
This first effort was a failure, but the projected book did make its way into print in London one year later, under the title, Poems on Various Subjects, Religious and Moral. Her youth and her race were uppermost in the mind of both her promoters and her readers. In the initial proposal for the book, in the front matter of the published volume, and in a later set of proposals for a projected sequel, it was emphasized that Phyllis was indeed young, gifted, and black. Her linguistic gift led to the great astonishment of all who heard her. She was a Negro girl writing from the strength of her own genius, it being but a few years since she came to this town an uncultivated barbarian from Africa. And she was promised to be of interest to those who are always in search of some new thing that they may obtain a sight of this rara avis in terra, Latin for rare bird in the land. Apparently, the good people of Boston were not just astonished, but outright incredulous. Thus, a so-called attestation was published along with Wheatley's poems, in which prominent Bostonians testified that they really were hers. The witnesses included John Hancock, famous for putting his name to a certain other document just a few years later. Wheatley's book itself was no Declaration of Independence, though. To the contrary, the attestation says explicitly that she wrote the poems while serving as a slave to the Wheatley family. Happily, though, Phyllis did win her freedom, securing manumission from the Wheatleys during a trip to London before returning to Boston as a free woman. There, she married a man named John Peters in 1778. Unfortunately, their life together would be marred by her ill health, the early death of each of her three children, the end of her publishing career, and financial problems that would land Peters in debtor's prison. She died in 1784, when she would have been about 30, even younger than Mozart and Hansberry. It's unfortunate that Wheatley's second book was never published, because a number of her poems have as a result been lost to posterity. Nonetheless, we have more than 50 of her works, albeit that these are mostly very short, just one or two pages long. It should be said right away that, to the modern ear, they inevitably sound rather antiquated in style, and often in the choice of theme. Wheatley's classicizing education frequently shows itself, as in this fairly typical passage which begins a poem inspired by the Latin poetry of Ovid. Apollo's wrath to man the dreadful spring of ills innumerous, tuneful goddess sing, thou who didst first the ideal pencil give, and taught'st the painter in his works to live. Of course, a late 18th century audience was more used to this sort of thing, perhaps indeed too used to it. Some critics deemed Wheatley's writing derivative, especially of the verses of Alexander Pope, and it is certainly true that Pope was a major influence on her poetry, most notably in her use of his style of heroic couplets, those rhyming pairs of lines in iambic pentameter which we have just given you a taste of. This went hand in hand with a further suspicion that Wheatley was little more than a puppet of her masters. In 1898, one reader complained that the rare songbird of Africa was thoroughly tamed in her Boston cage, another writing in 1913 that here is no Zulu, but drawing-room English. Her most famous detractor, however, was Thomas Jefferson. Wheatley had a positive encounter with another of America's founding fathers, writing a poem in honor of George Washington, which seems to have pleased the general and future president. But Jefferson had nothing but disdain for her works. While mounting his argument that black people would never be successfully integrated into American society, he wrote that, Religion, indeed, has produced a Phyllis Wheatley, but it could not produce a poet. The compilations published under her name are below the dignity of criticism. This dismissive remark, complete with a misspelling of her name, provoked something of a backlash. 
Gilbert Imlay wrote in 1797, I should be glad to be informed what white person upon this continent has written more beautiful lines. And in the early 19th century, Samuel Stanhope Smith remarked, I will demand of Mr. Jefferson or any other man who is acquainted with American planters how many of these masters could have written poems equal to those of Phyllis Wheatley. From this, we can see how Wheatley was co-opted into a wider debate over the talents of Africans. Just like Anton Wilhelm Amo, she was held up as an example of the genius that could be found among black people, as when the famous abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison wrote that her poems provide some conception of the amount of genius which slavery is murdering. Still today, the response to her poems tends to revolve around questions concerning her identity as an African. Her detractors express disappointment in the way she sometimes appears to denigrate Africa, while her champions point out passages in which she affirms her African identity and expresses solidarity with others who had, like her, been brought to America as chattel. We'll get onto this important debate in due course. First, though, we want to examine some other philosophical ideas in her writing. Here, we can admit that Jefferson was right about one thing. It was in no small part religion that gave us Phyllis Wheatley. Her deep piety shines through much of her work and not infrequently dictates her choice of subject matter. Two early poems, written a mere six years after her arrival in Boston, when she was barely even a teenager, are attacks on atheism and deism. These invoke familiar arguments for mainstream Christian belief, as in the line, If there's no God, from whence did all things spring? A longer poem on divine providence begins with Wheatley exhorting her own soul to praise God like the angels do. The religious motif reappears throughout her many poems written on the occasion of a death. These elegies, which make up no fewer than one-third of her published works, sometimes mark the passing of prominent individuals like the aforementioned poem in honor of Whitefield. In other cases, she offers consolation to bereaved parents. While frequently admitting the inadequacy of her poems to this and other occasions, Wheatley encourages her readers to see death as liberation from an inferior realm, a world of sin and snares and pain, and as a passage to a better place. In particular, we should not fear to lose the pleasures of this world, because when we are called to God, he welcomes thee to pleasures more refined and better suited to the immortal mind. Before death, however, poetry offers a foretaste of the afterlife, for its source, Wheatley constantly observes, is supernatural. We conceded to Jefferson that Christianity animates her verses, but she talks about the sources of poetic inspiration also in terms drawn from classical Greek and Roman myth and literature. Indeed, Jupiter Hammond's poem addressed to Wheatley, which we mentioned last time, is thought by some scholars to emphasize the importance of Christianity in reaction to Wheatley's investment in classical mythology. Frequently, she invokes the Nine Muses and writes a major poem about recollection or memory, who was mother of the Muses. It begins with the plea, Inspire ye sacred nine, your venturous Afric in her great design, and goes on to say that memory, to the high-raptured poet, gives her aid through the unbounded regions of the mind, diffusing light celestial and refined. One of her running themes is accordingly that poetry, or at least the kind she hopes to write, has something in common with celestial or angelic, rather than earthly language. Thus she asks, Raise my mind to a seraphic strain, and elsewhere laments, Had I the tongue of a seraphim, how would I exalt thy praise? 
This suggestion that poetry puts us in touch with the heavenly realm is reinforced in another of her works, placed in her book just after the poem On Recollection, and viewed by some critics as her masterpiece. This poem, entitled On Imagination, argues that imagination is the soul's greatest faculty, or, as she puts it, leader of the mental train. Its use frees us from the limitations of everyday experience and allows us to grasp other worlds. From star to star the mental optics rove, measure the skies and range the realms above. There, in one view, we grasp the mighty whole, or with new worlds amaze the unbounded soul. John Shields, one of the most prolific interpreters of Wheatley's poetry, has written that Wheatley enthusiastically embraces liberation as the subject of her writing. It's hard to disagree, as long as it is clear that we are speaking not merely of losing our chains in a physical sense, but also in the sense that imagination and poetic artistry can free us from all constraint. Obviously, though, this is a theme that can be related to Wheatley's feelings on slavery, even if that connection often remains tacit. Instead, she presents the infinity and unboundedness of the soul and of the imagination in religious, psychological, and aesthetic terms. For example, for her, sleep can provide an opportunity to exercise imaginative freedom. In lines that wouldn't be out of place in Shakespeare, she writes, Say, what is sleep? And dreams, how passing strange. When action ceases and ideas range, licentious and unbounded over the plains, where fancy's queen in giddy triumph reigns. Poetry is not unique in giving us a path to this dreamlike freedom. She draws parallels between the poet and other kinds of artist, notably in a set of verses dedicated to a young African painter. While identified in the poem only by the initial SM, a note she wrote in her own copy of poems on various subjects, religious and moral, identifies the painter as Scipio Moorhead, and it is widely believed that he engraved the most famous portrait of Wheatley. Addressing Moorhead, Wheatley writes, High to the blissful wonders of the skies, elate thy soul and raise thy wishful eyes. Clearly then, Wheatley is making extravagant claims about the power of art in general. Yet those claims come together with a profound humility, in part because of her Christian awareness of sinfulness and finitude, and in part because, for her, artistic inspiration comes from outside the artist, from a heavenly source. Appealing again to the muses, she implores... Indulgent muse, my groveling mind inspire, and fill my bosom with celestial fire. In fact, Wheatley's consummate artistry is never more subtle than when she reflects upon her own humility. Here, as promised, we return to the question of her status as an African slave and as a young woman to boot. She is well aware of her socially inferior position, so she manipulates this status to create an authorial persona that manages to be ostentatiously modest yet morally authoritative. Often, when she mentions her own origins in the poems, she is doing so in order to shame or otherwise move her more privileged reader. Thus, in the diatribe against deism, she asks rhetorically, Must Ethiopians be employed for you? That is, are these opponents so blind to the truth that even an African has to point it out to them? It is possible to interpret another passage, one of the most notorious in her poems, in a similar light. It comes in the context of an address to graduates from the University of Cambridge, later Harvard University. After the usual invocation of the muses, Wheatley writes, "'Twas not long since I left my native shore, the land of errors and Egyptian gloom. Father of mercy, t'was thy gracious hand, brought me in safety from those dark abodes." These lines have been deplored, 
since it sounds as if she is expressing gratitude for her abduction from Africa. But we should bear in mind her deep belief that God's providence guides all things. For Wheatley, it would have presumably been axiomatic that she was brought to America for a reason. She is suggesting here that she survived the Middle Passage and was brought into the light of Christianity and education so that she could serve as a kind of messenger, a bringer of illumination from gloomy Africa. On this basis, she goes on to exhort the students to consider Christ's redemptive sacrifice and warns them against sin, writing, An Ethiop tells you, tis your greatest foe. And a similar approach could be taken to another of her poems, only eight lines long, entitled On Being Brought from Africa to America. It's arguably the most famous of all her poems, for better or, some would say, for worse. It's worth quoting in full. "'Twas mercy brought me from my pagan land, taught my benighted soul to understand, that there's a God, that there's a Savior, too, once I redemption neither sought nor knew. Some view of sable race with scornful eye, their color is a diabolic dye. Remember, Christians, Negroes black as Cain may be refined and join the angelic train. Here, Wheatley compresses into a shorter space the same kind of reversal scene in the address to the students at Cambridge. She expresses what certainly seems like disdain for her African homeland, benighted by its lack of Christian wisdom, and this disdain she invites the reader to share. She then springs the trap she's laid by telling that same reader not to look upon the Africans scornfully, because insofar as they are redeemed by accepting the Christian truth, they will be saved just as surely as white believers. In short, what matters is not where you are from or what color your skin is, but whether you believe in God the Father and Christ the Son. The moral authority Wheatley assumes in these poems, granting herself as an enslaved black girl the right to instruct white male students and to rebuke the hypocrisy of racist white Christians, ought to be noticed and appreciated. Still, one might understandably wish for a clearer statement that slavery is, well, wrong. Those who are only familiar with On Being Brought from Africa to America should know, then, that there is at least one poem of hers that offers a completely different take on the matter. This is To the Right Honorable William, Earl of Dartmouth, which is perhaps the most important and celebrated of her political poems. Lord Dartmouth served the British government as Secretary of State for the Colonies, and was viewed at the time of Wheatley's poem as favorable to the cause of the American colonists. After celebrating him for this, Wheatley writes... Should you, my lord, while you peruse my song, wonder from whence my love of freedom sprung, whence flow these wishes for the common good, by feeling hearts alone best understood, I, young in life by seeming cruel fate, was snatched from Afric's fancied happy seat, what pangs excruciatingly must molest, what sorrows labor in my parents' breast. Steeled was that soul, and by no misery moved, that from a father seized his babe beloved. Such, such my case." And can I then but pray, others may never feel tyrannic sway? The gripping denouncement of the slave trade in these lines, by one who experienced the horror of the Middle Passage, renders them among Wheatley's most arresting moments as a writer. Another place we find Wheatley making an explicit connection between America's oppression by the British and the oppression of black Africans by white Americans is in a letter written by Wheatley in 1774. Here, she agrees with her correspondent, Samson Ockham, a Native American preacher who argued for the natural rights of Negroes. Wheatley adds that in her opinion, God has implanted a principle which we call love of freedom in all humans. She concludes her letter, 
how well the cry for liberty and the reverse disposition for the exercise of oppressive power over others agree, I humbly think it does not require the penetration of a philosopher to determine. Something worth noting about Wheatley's critique of slavery is that those who hold up her poetry, or the sophisticated treatises of Amo, can sometimes, intentionally or unintentionally, sound like they think it is wrong to enslave Africans, simply because the occasional African can write philosophy like Leibniz, or poetry like Pope. Think again of Garrison's appeal to the amount of genius which slavery is murdering, a well-intentioned point, no doubt, given this passionate abolitionist's commitment to freedom for all. But the phrasing might leave you wondering about slaves who aren't geniuses. Wheatley, in her letter to Ockham, makes it absolutely clear that, given the universal desire for freedom, it is not being gifted that justifies liberty, it is being human. Our next episode will be on another author from New England, who would have agreed with Wheatley on this point, and also agreed with her that the value of freedom is inextricably bound up with God's providence. Like Wheatley, he wrote about the conflict between the ideals of the American Revolution and the American institution of slavery, and he wrote about this as someone who fought on the American side in the Revolutionary War. In fact, he was even a minute man. But you'll have to wait more than a minute to hear about him, because after next week's episode on Renaissance philosophy, the podcast is going on its annual summer break. We will return on September 1st, when we will be meeting Calvinist crusader and early American patriot Lemuel Haynes, here on The History of Africana Philosophy. I'm gonna tell him I had heart trials. Tell him I had heart trials. I'm gonna tell God.